Going Postal Cast and Christopher Chapman present Incarceration, the serialized weekly podcast performed by the author, Christopher Chapman. For more information, visit www.goingpostpublishing.com or email him at goingpostpublishing at gmail.com. This podcast is not suitable for children. It has violence, gore, and lots and lots of naughty words. If you can't handle that, go somewhere else. And now, on with the story, or whatever other crap I decide to come up with. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 13 of Incarceration. I am your host and author, Christopher Chapman, and little less uh, enthusiasm this week. Um, if you listen to last week's episode, I didn't really address a lot of the things that had happened uh, with the the shooting in Connecticut, and I just wanted to take a couple of moments here right at the beginning of the episode to just kind of talk about that a little bit, because I know you're probably all burnt out by now of hearing about it, but really it's just one of those things that no matter how many times you you try to avoid it, it's, it, it just keeps coming back, and when I, I didn't even know about it before I recorded last week's episode, I had talked to a friend of mine on the phone just briefly, and he mentioned there was a shooting, and my first thought was, oh god, more kids bringing guns to school, and you know, I figured it was some kind of high school thing, and then the next day after I'd already recorded the episode, I found out what happened, and and well, it just kind of makes you uh, think, and it's one of those times. It's one of those times where you just you you just grab onto your kids a little bit longer and give them a few extra seconds of a hug and uh, just tell them you love them maybe a couple more times a day. And for anyone that was affected by it, uh, my sincere condolences go out to you, and I hope that things eventually get better for you. You know, being an, a horror author, you kind of come up with some of the most crazy and evil ways of killing people off in fiction. And yet, even with all this fiction that I've done, I couldn't have come up with something as horrific and disturbing as what happened there. And to be completely honest, I had several years ago try, came up with a story in which I wanted to kind of address the school shootings and kind of piggyback off of that. I was calling it The Student, which was basically a story about a kid that was at every school shooting throughout you know, basically history and kind of, I didn't know what I was going to do with them, make them like a devil child or son of the devil or something, but... I never could go through with it, and, you know, as the years went on and I had kids, I realized why I didn't write it, because there's just some things, no matter how much you try to, you know, inflict the scariness and the horror, there's just some areas you just can't go, and this is one of those times, and I'm sorry if this episode is kind of a downer for you. I promise in about a 30 more seconds here, I'm going to pick it up a little bit. But uh, once again, my sincere condolences go out to those affected, and I hope that you can find the strength to carry on.
So now after that, I want to try picking up the, uh, the mood a little bit and talk about something else that happened this week, and that would be the end of the world. Well, I guess it didn't happen. Either that or I am dead, and I'm recording this from beyond the grave, or I'm in the Matrix. Haven't figured out which yet. So, of course, the Mayan calendar ended on the 21st. We were supposed to all die. We're not dead. The world's still still here, so yay for that. We can move on, and we can continue. And I was worried. I was, I was ready to throw in my entire writing career because I was just so worried that the world was coming to an end. And I had this strange question that I was asking. Is there really people out there that were so high-strung and so worried about the end of the world that maybe they didn't buy their own kids Christmas presents this year because they were stocking up and buying supplies because maybe they thought that the end of the world, because it was so close to Christmas, maybe they thought it was going to be more like Weird Al Yankovic's Christmas at Ground Zero. You know, atom bombs drop in and just makes me think, what a crazy fluke, we're going to get nuked on this jolly holiday. Well, there were no atom bombs, and the end of the world didn't come, so, woo! And speaking of continuing on and Christmas at Ground Zero, it is Christmas. If you are listening to this on the day that this episode came out, it is Christmas Eve. Chances are you're listening to it later on, but that's okay. Merry Christmas to all of you. Happy Holidays to those of you who don't celebrate Christmas and you celebrate one of those other holidays, the Hanukkahs, or Kwanzaas, and whatever else there is. I hope all of you do have a great holiday and have just spend a lot of time with your family. And this is one of those big family holidays. This is a great time to spend time with your family, get together, have a feast, get fatter together, and it'll. And I know that was improper English, but. Yes, get fatter together. <laughs> All right. So I think we're just going to get right into the story. I've already been talking for, we're already about six and a half minutes into this episode. So let's just get right into the story. Here's a few more chapters of Incarceration. Chapter 24. Two lifetime sentences. It was too good to be true. Chief of Police Randy Thompson sat at his desk relishing in the fact that everything had gone the way he'd intended it to. Not only had Jason been convicted of murder, he'd just been sentenced to two consecutive life sentences with no chance of parole. Not only was he going to prison, he was never getting out. He chuckled at his victory. To think that the guilty verdict came because a single juror watched Jason extra closely, it was just too funny. When Michael Dorr had asked for ten seconds to see if the Ringles would enter the courtroom, Almost everybody, including Randy, looked towards the door. Everybody, however, didn't include two people. One of the jurors watched Jason. When everybody else was looking at the door, Jason kept staring straight ahead. He knew that they weren't coming, the jurors said later. He didn't need to look because he already knew that they were dead. It was like painting a big guilty sign on his forehead. There still was another killer out there that hadn't been caught. Now that Jason was behind bars, it was safe to pursue that angle. It could be months, maybe even a year, before Jason could get an appeal going, and it would do him little good, especially when new evidence was bound to surface if they caught the accomplice. For Randy, this case wasn't closed, not by a long shot. 
he wasn't exactly sure how he was going to go about capturing the accomplice. As far as he knew, the accomplice was still hiding in the Houghton area. There had been only one more death and one disappearance since he'd received that newspaper at his front door. As with his case, the body had disappeared. It was all too precise to be coincidence. Even if the authorities in Houghton were unable to make the connection, or maybe they were just unwilling. As far as they were still concerned, it was a copycat killer. No, this was the real deal. This was the killer who'd taken out Officer Jim Hendricks at the scene of the Wrangell murders. He'd even gone so far as to break into the morgue and make two other officers disappear, as well as the Wrangell bodies that following morning. He was still out there somewhere and was still killing. There was a knock at the door. Come in, Randy said. The door swung open and Officer Brad Collenbach stepped into the office. He sat down across from Randy and looked at him with a strange look on his face. What? Oh, like you didn't know, Brad said, his strange expression turning into one of excitement. You can't honestly say that you didn't know about the television piece that they were running on you. Oh, that thing, Randy said modestly. I knew that they were putting a segment together. They never actually told me when it was going to air. Two weeks earlier, Randy had done an interview with a television reporter from Channel 5 News out of Green Bay. They walked with him most of the day, filming everything he did. Nothing important happened that day, but that didn't deter the fact that Channel 5's viewers would be interested in the man who had brought down Jason Rangel. Brad tossed the VHS cassette onto the desk. My wife films most of the newscasts, in the event I end up on it for some reason or another, Brad said. She told me to watch it. I must say, you look pretty impressive. Oh, I'm sure you're exaggerating. No, I'm not, Brad said. And to think that you're thinking about running for Congress. Why didn't you tell me? What? Yeah, the lady that interviewed you said that you were considering running for Congress. I never said that, Randy told him. Look for yourself, Brad said as he grabbed the cassette from the desk. He walked across the room to the television and VCR. He slid the cassette into the VCR and pressed play. He turned on the television and stepped back. Here we go. The tape started with Debbie Jenkins of Channel 5 News. The interview went much of the way he'd remembered, centering around what had happened in the Jason Rangel case and what he had to go through to make sure that he would spend the rest of his life behind bars. They showed details of Jason's history and switched to interviews with other people, including some who said how much they appreciated Randy for his work in getting a murderer off the streets. Randy swelled with pride as one after another spoke about him. The screen switched back to Debbie as she gave her last few thoughts. As good of a job as Officer Thompson has done in small-town Niagara, Debbie began, does not properly explain this man's true potential. With congressional candidates making their intentions known in the coming months, it seems highly likely that we could be looking at the region's newest member of the House of Representatives. Although he has not officially announced his candidacy, my inside sources tell me that he is strongly considering taking the post seeing as the incumbent is retiring at the end of his term. Good luck, Randy. For Channel 5 News, I'm Debbie Jenkins. Brad stopped the tape, then returned to his seat. Randy stared at the blank screen, not knowing what to say or even think. He'd never thought about the possibility of running for the House of Representatives. The thought hadn't even been a blip on his radar, but now that he had thought about it for a few seconds, he kind of liked the idea. Representative Randy Thompson. 
The name had a certain ring to it that made him feel good. I don't know how serious you are about this, but I think you'd make one hell of a representative, Brad said. The only reason that you'd want me to do that would be because you'd likely be in line to take this job, Randy said, laughing as he said it. You going after my job? Yes, I am, Brad said. I've already had my nameplate made up. Chief of Police Brad Collenbach. Sounds a little long, but my wife likes it. He stood up, turning towards the door. I have to go. Despite you being Superman, protecting the city from the forces of evil, some of us still have to go out on the streets and make sure that nobody runs a stop sign or throws eggs at the elderly. Brad left the room, closing the door behind him. Randy sat there, thinking about the revelation that Brad had presented him. Maybe it was a good idea. It was something he'd have to consider, especially with the popularity he now possessed. Putting Jason Ringle in prison was a career booster that most professionals could only dream of. He'd gotten very lucky that night when he'd wanted to re-examine the Norman murder scene. If he hadn't gone down the street at that exact moment and been stopped by Jason... Wait a second, Randy thought. Why exactly had he stopped me? He'd thought about it momentarily that night, but never really struck him until this moment. Why exactly had Jason stopped him that night? He'd run out to the road, yelling about his parents being murdered. Why would he have done that? Jason could have easily let him drive by, and he would have been none the wiser. It was pitch black outside, and there had been no guns fired, as one had been in the Norman killings. He'd killed his parents without making a sound, and was concealed in darkness. He could have fled the scene and been long gone before anybody discovered the bodies. Had Jason actually thought that he could throw him off the trail by coming forward and claiming there was somebody else? It seemed possible, but just how likely was it? He'd seen Jason's grades throughout high school and saw he'd always received very high marks and had been on the honor roll several times. The boy wasn't stupid by any stretch of the imagination. How could he have made such an error in judgment? The only thing he could think of was that he killed his parents and panicked. Maybe he felt guilt, something he may not have felt after killing the Normans. Maybe he rushed a story before he had a real chance to think about it. Whatever the reason was, it seemed out of character for Jason, even if he had a runaway temper. Why hadn't he thought about all of this before? He was supposed to be good at seeing through all of the bullshit, yet he hadn't even thought about what he'd actually seen that night. Jason had come to him. Randy was sure that he looked frightened. Sure, that could have meant that he was scared of what was going to happen now that his parents were dead, but what if that wasn't the case? What if he had done just as he'd said, running out of there because the man who had killed his parents was chasing him? Randy had seen that scratch on the window, that deep cut that seemed as if somebody, or something, was trying to break in. Jason had been right about that too, and there was no way that he could have made it himself because he was inside the car. Sure, he could have gotten his accomplice to do it for him, but what if he hadn't? For the first time since he saw the bodies of Mary and Gary Rangel, doubt swirled in his mind like a tornado on a collision course with a trailer park. Something that he'd been so certain about just minutes before seemed far-fetched now. Why did that sound so stupid now? How could he have gone months with this idea stuck in his head that everything was as clear as day and now suddenly he couldn't believe it anymore. What had once seemed so clear was now a murky haze, blanketing his sight. Had he made a mistake? If there was one character flaw in Chief of Police Randy Thompson, 
it was that he never admitted his mistakes. If this was something that he had missed out on for whatever reason, he wasn't about to come clean about it. You don't move up on the totem pole by admitting every time you make a minor mistake. As cruel and evil as it seemed, this was no different. If this really was a mistake, that's all it really was. He had an opportunity to do some real good, especially now that it appeared that he had a real shot at becoming the next member of the House of Representatives. The idea that he was going to let Jason Rangel rot in prison while he prospered seemed alien to him, yet it was exactly what was going to happen. He'd made his bed and was now going to sleep in it. Nobody was going to investigate these murders any more than they had to, unless the murders returned to Niagara. He knew that wasn't going to happen. There was a supposed copycat killer lurking in the Houghton area, or maybe someplace else by now. He no longer had to worry about that part of it, and wouldn't have to unless the murders returned. He was confident that would never happen. The only problem he had was how could he have changed his mind so quickly on this case? He'd been celebrating the two life sentences not more than 20 minutes earlier. What had changed? He didn't know the answer to that. It felt like a veil had been lifted from over his eyes, giving him a clear vision of the world for the first time. That was ridiculous. He felt as crazy as Jason Rangel for thinking it. He took a deep breath, determining that this was just his guilt trying to get the best of him. He'd done everything right, hadn't he? He collected all of the evidence and arrested the proper suspect. Yes, that was absolutely right. He'd arrested the correct suspect. He had to get his guilt out of his mind. There was no way he was going to be able to live with guilt like this for the rest of his life. He had to forget about it and remember that all of the evidence pointed in Jason's direction anyway. A jury of 12 agreed with him, convicting Jason in less than an hour. Even if there was a slight chance that he'd been wrong, then it would be the jury's fault. It was their job to determine guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. It was obvious that there hadn't been any doubt in their minds. Otherwise, Jason Rangel would be walking free at this very moment rather than being on a bus heading for his new home in one of Wisconsin's finest prisons. He got up and walked to a cabinet behind the desk. He opened the cabinet and pulled a clear glass bottle out. He found a clean glass and poured some of the contents from the bottle into the glass. He took a drink, letting the sting in his throat remind him of who he was. Vodka always did that for him. It was a soul-cleansing drink. He smiled. He was going to be a congressman. Thoughts of Jason Rangel drifted away in the vodka's burn as thoughts of Washington, D.C. invaded his mind like a platoon on its way to a foreign capital. He was going to be a congressman. Chapter 25 It was unlike anything that Jason Rangel had ever expected. He'd always pictured prison to be one way, but could have never guessed that it would be anything like this. He'd always envisioned prison to be nothing more than a group of guys in white and black striped suits chiseling away at rocks with picks. That's the way television always had depicted it when he was growing up. How was he supposed to know that everything he'd seen about prison had been tame compared to what was now before him? The bus trip was like something out of a movie. Unlike the trip to the courthouse, he was no longer alone. When he got on the bus, escorted at gunpoint, there was another man already on the bus. He was told by the armed guard to take his seat and keep quiet. He was warned that if he talked, he would start his prison stay in the hole. He really didn't want to know what the hole was. 
He kept quiet as they drove south. At one point, Jason overheard one of the guards say, Next stop, prison. His breathing slowed and his heart quickened. His nervousness took on a whole new meaning as the realization that his new life in prison was about to begin. Up to this point, he had no idea which prison he was being sent to. Even though he'd lived his entire life in Wisconsin, he had no idea of the existence of any prisons other than the one near Oshkosh that he'd seen while on a trip with his parents. He was well aware that there had to be more prisons than just in Oshkosh. For the life of him, he had no idea where any of them were. When they got back out on a Highway 41, he became certain that they were heading to Oshkosh. Imagine that, the one prison I know, and I'm going to be a resident of it. It turned out that he was wrong. Dead wrong. The bus turned off onto Highway 43, going around Green Bay rather than through it. They detoured off 43 and took many routes. He lost track of where they were, as he'd never been in this part of the state before. Then, just when he thought that the guards were taking him to Lake Michigan to drown him, they came to a sign welcoming them to the town of Stangleville. Stangleville? Where in the hell is Stangleville? The bus moved slowly through Stangleville. Once they had completely moved through the small town, the bus turned down an old dirt road that he swore wasn't a real road. Jason stared out the window as the trees seemed to get thicker on both sides of the bus. A yellow road sign reading, Dead End Ahead, passed by. Yet the bus continued picking up speed. Jason sat up in his seat. Fear setting in, he looked out the front window. A line of thick shrubs came into view, marking the end of the line. The bus wasn't turning, or even slowing. They were heading directly into the overgrowth. Jason closed his eyes, expecting the bus to hit a tree at any second. He grimaced as the sound of brush scraping against the side of the bus filled his ears. He opened his eyes, expecting to see nothing but dense forest all around them. He was surprised to find the bus on an old logging road. It hadn't been a dead end after all. The road continued. An old russet sign came into view on their right. He read the sign, a sick feeling gripping his stomach as he did. Lipsky Swamp State Prison. Less than a minute later, the bus pulled up to a large metal gate. Jason looked out the window, trying to get a good view of his new home. What he saw stopped his breath. The gate was much larger than the bus and was constructed of solid steel. Solid walls, covered in barbed wire, surrounded a large yard. Four large towers were visible, even from the gate. They towered high above the prison, giving armed guards the perfect opportunity to gun down anybody who dared attempt an escape. The prison was densely covered with tall trees with thick branches and leaves. The prison would be hard to spot from the air, which made Jason nervous. He thought that prisons liked to be in the open in the event of an escape. They obviously weren't too worried about that here. The gate opened slowly. The bus moved forward, entering the prison. Jason looked around once more, seeing more and more of what awaited him. There were three large yards, each separated with large amounts of barbed wire. Just looking at the barbed wire made his skin hurt. One thing was certain, escaping from here was going to be literally impossible. The bus continued forward, following a gravel road to a large set of garage doors. The bus slowed just as the garage door started upward, opening like a large mouth getting ready to swallow its food. They were the food about to be eaten. The bus entered through the garage doors. 
The door slowly closed behind them, surrounding them in darkness. Jason had to wait a few moments for his eyes to adjust. The bus stopped at a door. Two armed guards came out to the bus from through those doors. Each one carried a semi-automatic weapon, designed to take down large numbers if necessary. Jason hoped that nobody tried escaping. He didn't want to become a casualty because of somebody else's stupidity. One of the guards entered the bus and spoke to them. Welcome to Lipsky Swamp, your new home, a guard with a raspy voice said. I want you to do exactly as I or any of the other men with semi-automatic weapons tell you to do. If you try to escape, we will shoot you. If you become hostile, we will kill you. If there are any questions, I suggest you keep them to yourselves. He paused, looking back out of the bus. You will be unlocked at this time. I want you to follow me. Another guard, this one had been the one that had locked him to his seat, came around with a set of keys. One by one, he unlocked the chains that held them to the bus floor and instead hooked their wrists to the chains that held their ankles together. They were then escorted down the aisle and out of the bus where they were met by two guards with weapons. When they were off the bus, they were taken through the doors and into the main body of the prison. At this point, they were asked to form a line with a group of the other prisoners. One of the armed guards stayed out, making sure that nobody made any unwise moves, while the other entered a small room. One by one, they were asked to enter the room. Jason didn't know what was going on in the room, but he would soon find out. His turn came less than ten minutes after the first had entered the room. The prisoner who had entered had not returned. Jason entered the room to find the guard with the semi-automatic, as well as two other guards. One approached him and unlocked his cuffs. All of his chains were removed, leaving his arms and legs free to move. It felt good to be free from them. Take off your clothes, the guard said as he placed all of the chains and cuffs onto a small table with another set of chains. Jason did as he was asked, removing all of his clothes. The room felt cool and damp against his naked skin. He used his hands to cover his penis and testicles. Guy, you're in prison with more than 200 other men, the guard said. You actually think that covering yourself is going to stop any of these other guys from sneaking a look? Get over yourself. You're nothing special anyway. Jason removed his hands slowly as the guard grabbed a clipboard containing dozens of sheets of paper. He fingered through the sheets, looking for something. When he found what he was looking for, he spoke. It says here that you're Jason Rangel, the guard said. It came as a statement, not as a question. You're the one that killed all them people up north. Jason didn't answer him. He saw no need to admit anything to this guy, seeing as there was nothing to admit. He was just a bastard trying to get a rise out of him. Maybe I should be giving you special treatment, the guard said. Around here, you're famous. Tell you what, when I check your ass for contraband, I'll make sure I use a little extra special care. He put on a rubber glove. Jason stood silently, refusing to let this man push his buttons. If these men knew who he was, then they likely knew about his temper and how to get him to break. He had to use all of his concentration to not argue with this man as he started checking him over. Lift your arms the guard instructed. Jason reluctantly did as he was told. The guard proceeded to look under both arms. Lift your feet. Jason lifted his left foot, then his right. Turn around. He did that as well. Place your hands against the table and spread your legs. 
This he had a problem with. He stood his ground, refusing to budge. Apparently somebody didn't get all of the instructions when he got off the bus. I suggest you turn around, unless you want to spend your first two weeks in the hole. Or worse. Jason thought the threat over for a second. He didn't want to go to the hole for one reason. It sounded dark. He still hadn't gotten over his fear of the dark since his parents died. It wasn't about to get two weeks of constant darkness. He feared that the hole would finally be what broke his sanity. He also didn't want to know what worse meant. He turned around and spread his legs. He closed his eyes and tried to think about something other than what was about to happen to him. He tried to think about his parents and how nice it would be if they were still alive. All that did was bring him a little extra anger for the fact that he had been found guilty of their murders. He pushed that from his mind as he felt something, a finger, enter his ass. He bit down on his lip, feeling as uncomfortable as he'd ever been in his entire life. Then, as quickly as it had started, it was over. He opened his eyes. See? the guard said. I popped your cherry without so much as a scratch. Things go much easier when you do what you're told. Turn around. Jason turned as a pile of orange clothes was tossed his way. He caught them. Put one of these on. They have your prisoner number stamped on them. This will be who you are from now on. You are no longer Jason Wrangle. You are prisoner 2579876. Are there any questions? Jason said nothing as he put on the clothes. Good. I'm glad that we understand each other. Fully clothed, Jason was taken out of the room through the rear door as another prisoner was called in. He realized that he was walking funny, having been violated by the guard. He felt somewhat thankful that it hadn't been the rape scene that Dave had predicted when he last talked to him. Dave. There was one name he hoped to never have to think about again. After what he did to him at the trial, he hoped that something bad would happen to him. No. He took that back. Jason was full aware of what something bad was and didn't wish it upon anyone. What he wanted was to get him alone. Then he could make what happened to Nathan Paulson seem like a walk in the park. Sure, Dave was bigger than he was, but that didn't matter. He'd feel better the second that his fist struck Dave's jaw. If his jaw snapped, well, that was even better. With all of his thoughts about Dave, he'd lost track of what was happening around him. He looked back and no longer saw the door that he'd gone through. Another guard was escorting him. He didn't carry a semi-automatic, but did have a billy club, as well as a 9mm pistol in a holster at his side. He was no longer sure of where he was. They'd taken several twists and turns since leaving the room. Each corridor looked the same, surrounded by brick and steel doors. They came to another set of steel doors and stopped. There was a glass window to their right. The guard looked in there, and then the door in front of them slowly opened. Welcome to your new home, the guard said as he motioned for Jason to step through. Jason took two steps forward before the noise hit him. The voices of hundreds of men hit his ears all at once. He looked up, staring at what lie before him. He was in the largest room he'd ever seen. He imagined that this was what an airport hangar would look like. Three stories tall and over a hundred yards long, metal walkways on both sides. This was something out of a nightmare. 
Old-fashioned steel steps led up to each of the levels, each level protected with large metallic steel rails. Jason was escorted to the right and up to the second floor. They moved down the corridor about halfway, passing prisoners upon prisoners. He saw that most of the cells had two prisoners inside. Many of them were giving him their warmest greetings. A large black man with bulging muscles yelled that he was going to make Jason his bitch. The idea didn't seem all that tempting. They stopped in front of the cell with the number 255 stamped to the right of it. The guard lifted his radio and spoke into it. With all the noise, Jason couldn't make out what he'd said. The door slid open. A push from behind forced Jason inside. He turned, hoping to plead his case to the guard, but the door was already three-quarters of the way closed. He couldn't see the guard anymore. That CEO gave you the royal treatment, a voice said from behind him. He turned to see a small white man with a buzz cut and glasses. He couldn't have been more than three years older than Jason. When I got here, I received a form to the back of my neck as a welcoming gift. What's a CO? Jason asked. Correctional officer, the man said. That's what they call themselves. Must make them feel important. He stood and walked to Jason. Hi, I'm Rick Carlson, two-year veteran of this place. Welcome to hell. Jason Wrangle, he said, extending his hand. He was surprised when Rick shook his hand. Jason Wrangle, man, I can't believe that you're going to be my roommate, Rick said. We know all about you. You're big news around here. Jason wasn't surprised. This was already the second time that somebody here had known who he was. He couldn't believe that he was so widely known. Man, I should have known that you were going to wind up here. Rick said. What do you mean by that? Jason asked. Rick looked at him for a moment, as if he were studying him. You really don't know? Rick asked, chuckling. You are in the Lipsky Swamp State Prison. Rick stared at him as if that was supposed to mean something. Yeah, so? Lipsky Swamp is where Wisconsin sends the criminals that they want to just disappear. Nobody knows about this prison. It doesn't appear on any state registry or map. Did you happen to see all the trees surrounding the place as you rode in? He saw, all right. The place is surrounded by forest on all sides, Rick continued. I don't think that the town knows that it's here. It's a secret that they don't want anybody to know about. Here, there are no rules. The COs can get away with murder if they want. You'll just disappear. It'll be like you never existed. Rick went to the bunks and dropped onto the lower bunk. He chuckled, then turned away from him. Jason looked at the room. Other than the bunks, there was only a toilet and a small sink. The room was small, maybe eight feet across and ten feet deep. There wasn't a lot of room for maneuvering. He climbed onto the upper bunk and lied down. He was exhausted. He wasn't really tired, but his mind felt as if it had been running a marathon. All of the changes in his life as well as his wondering how he was going to get out of this, had left him mentally drained. He felt drowsy, but he didn't think he could fall asleep. How could he sleep when the man that had killed his parents was still out there? It didn't matter. He had to sleep sometime. While Jason Wrangle was falling asleep in prison, someone or something else also slept. The man, monster, that killed Jason's parents slept waiting for the opportunity to hunt once more.
He'd gotten away with it yet again. This was how it worked. He went from town to town, killing for food and pleasure. In the end, somebody always took the heat. When that happened, he moved on. It didn't pay to keep killing when somebody was taking the fall. This time had been different. He had been interfered with before he'd finished. Niagara was supposed to be the final stop. It hadn't gone as planned. Now he hid, but not in Houghton like Randy Thompson thought. No, Houghton was a thing of the past. He'd grown bored with that town and moved on despite nobody being arrested for the crimes. He'd toyed with Thompson, making him believe that he were still there. Sometimes, this could be so much fun. Now he was in a new place, and tonight was going to be his first chance to hunt, to kill. And there was nothing that anybody could do about it. He was growing stronger, so much stronger, and soon nobody would be able to get in his way. He felt disappointment in the way the Wrangle killings went down. The boy wasn't the one that was supposed to take the fall. He was supposed to die. The boy had been extremely lucky. That had never happened before, nor would it ever happen again. Jason Wrangle was going to be in prison for the rest of his life. Too bad he didn't understand that the rest of his life wouldn't be 70 or 80 years. No, he wouldn't give Wrangle the opportunity to live that long. Someday he's going to pay him a visit and finish a job he started. He has the time to do it. He has nothing but time. There you have it. Another couple of chapters from incarceration. So, found guilty, two life sentences, Jason's in a lot of trouble. Well, so am I. Because it's time now to pay the bills. It's time to self-promote. Incarceration is available as an ebook. Have you forgotten that fact? Ebook, $3.99. You can get it on the big three iBookstore, Kindle, Nook. You can get it for get it for all three. Y yeah, it doesn't matter. Get it for all three. Facebook.com slash going postal publishing for all you Facebookers out there. Twitter.com slash going postal pub. And, you know, I've been posting some really insane stuff on Twitter lately with the whole end-of-the-world stuff going on. We had a hashtag going on, end-of-the-world confessions, and I saw it as a time for me to start confessing all of the things that, you know, was going on in my life that I normally wouldn't have talked about, such as, there have been times when I've peed in your sink. Okay, so maybe that was from a Weird Al song, but, you know... One of my actual confessions, I'm not really an author. I'm a 76-year-old Vietnamese prostitute with lots of money and servant children who write. It's true. I also shot JR. I see dead people, and they won't shut up about Obama. I molested a priest just to show him how it feels. It didn't turn out how I expected it to. My butt still hurts. I've cried over spilled milk. I am a supervillain. I once shaved my head, bought a shotgun, and walked around saying, Shh, be very, very quiet. Ha <laughs> I've peed in a litter box. And probably the worst of all, I'm a Lions fan. Yeah, I, I'm so 
so ashamed about that. And, uh, you know, I also thought that Uncle Ben and Aunt Jemima were married at some point. So that's just some of the craziness that I might just randomly write about on Twitter. You should check it out sometime. Go to YouTube. You can see all of the videos from incarceration, from its inception all the way through, all the different teaser videos and everything. And I will be posting some more videos in the coming weeks. I have an iPhone now, so I'm going to be using that camera to do some video. So, yay, I can do a little bit better video now, so I'm excited about that. Amazon, click through. You know you want to. Just click through, buy whatever it is you were going to buy, whether it be shoes or electronics or, I don't know, just any random thing. Just if you're going to be ordering on Amazon, just click through the banner on goingpostalpublishing.com and just go right ahead and order something and you're good. I get a few pennies for every dollar you spend and it helps the show. It'll help me be able to buy more equipment like the iPhone, to be able to do more things. I'm looking forward to trying to expand what I've already been doing in the future, but resources are a bit tight right now, so I have four kids. That's a lot of mouths to feed, so enough about the kids. So that's going to wrap up this episode. I know it was a bit of a somber episode and kind of tried to get back into it and talk about some of the the things I normally talk about, but we're over 40 minutes into this, so I'm going to get going here. Um, I'm just going to say, you know, I'll talk to you all next week when I'm back for episode 14 of Incarceration. Take care now. Bye-bye then. And give your kids a little bit of a longer hug, would you? And an I love you once in a while doesn't hurt either. Bye now. This podcast is copyright 2012 Going Postal Publishing.